Let's pray one more time. Our Father, we come to you because you are the true and the living God. When we pray, it's not just a mere formality, a tradition with no meaning or significance, but Lord, we are seeking you, the, the God who is alive, the God who is active, the God who is indeed the one who has broken the chains of death, the God who is here among us even this day. So we seek you, Lord. We seek that you would uh, take your word and the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray that you may use it to sow the seeds of hope and life and courage and stamina and zeal for your kingdom. We pray that you do these things for the glory of your name. Amen. I wonder how you'd answer the question, what is the best news that you've heard in your lifetime? As I've thought about that question, uh, my father, who was born in 1922, has come to mind because if I had asked him that question, he would have had a very quick answer regarding the first third of his life, if you will, the first 25 or so years of his life. My father was a junior in college when World War II broke out. And since it was a military institute, he was still in the midst of numerous aspects of training to become an officer in the military. And I can recall my father telling the story quite um, with great detail, and also having recently read a letter in which he wrote uh, the news back to his parents. Uh, years ago, I came across a box of his letters that had been saved by his parents. And some snow day, I said, I'm pulling that thing out. I'm going to go through every single one. I sure did. Anyway, it was 1945 in August, and he had taken a train across the United States. He is located in California. He is getting ready to board a ship to go to the Philippines. And that is when he heard it announced that the Empire of Japan made known its intention to surrender. VJ Day, it was called, August of 1945. My father heard that indescribably good news. The war was over, and his life was changed forever. As a matter of fact, he never faced any of the dangers and destruction of active combat duty that so many others of his particular uh, training, the school that he attended, and many others that he knew, his generation uh, faced there in the Pacific Theater. I would dare say, when it comes to good news, the degree of that good news is wrapped up in probably the situation that we're in. For example, if you're a man in prison and he hears that he has received a pardon, I would think that that would be something that he would say, that is the best news I've ever heard. Another person, like a woman perhaps, that has been battling cancer for a while has a visit with the doctor following up on some recent tests, and he informs her, your cancer is in remission. I would dare say, she would say, that's some of the best news I've ever heard. Maybe some of us as young people, young adults, we have been seeking what's next for us, and we get in the mail or we get an email saying, your application has been accepted, or you have been accepted into a particular scholarship program. Man, that is great wonderful good news. One of the things about the Bible 
that draws us back to it again and again is that the Bible is filled with good news. It is gospel. That's what the word gospel means. It has just got the gospel um, woven into all of it, particularly in the emphasis on Jesus, who was given to us or presented to us in the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they wrote their accounts about Jesus, and they did so in such a way as to highlight this is extraordinary news that they have recorded. To be precise, the gospel writers recorded, I'm going to say, the best news ever recorded. I'm not exaggerating. I dare you to to help me uh, find where I have exaggerated in making such a statement. Because if you understand the sad situation in which the gospel, the good news is presented, you begin to understand why that statement is true. Here you have the body of the servant king, the body of the one who had come and who had promised to usher in the kingdom of God, who had done things that only God could do in human flesh, who had spoken things that touched and changed people powerfully, whose words are still being repeated even today. And here he is, His body is a lifeless body wrapped in strips of cloth with all sorts of spices to hold in check the fact that the body is beginning the process of decay. It's resting lifeless in a tomb. And Jesus had been put to death by crucifixion two days ago. And all of his predictions, all of his promises, all the things that he had made these great proclamations about who he was, all that had become devalued into zero value as long as he remained in that grave. But on the next day, the first day of the week, as we just read here in John 20, Mary Magdalene and other women joined her, and what were they doing? They headed to this tomb for the purpose of adding further spices because they knew they didn't have enough time to finish that process Uh, on the Friday as the Sabbath began, the sun set. They went there mourning. And if you look at verse 18, what was amazing about this comment that Mary brought back to the disciples was that the disciples themselves, we know, were all mourning. They were weeping, according to Mark 16.10. That's what they were doing. It was a very gloomy and discouraging situation. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is such an amazing statement of good news. When when Mary says, I have seen the Lord, she's not saying, I've seen his dead body. She's saying, I have seen him alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is then, was then, and is now the greatest news anyone will ever hear. I'm going to give you three reasons for that this morning. Number one. Because it's historically true. It's historically true. Many people today assume that the New Testament gospel accounts aren't really accurate. That they're not really historical documents. These are just religious teachings that, you know, we take them with a grain of salt. There's the spirit of, of resurrection there. You know, light triumphs over darkness and good triumphs over evil eventually. But no, no. As you read through the accounts of the gospel writers, we know that there are some issues there. 
Some people have made much of the contradictions, quote-unquote, I would call them the, the seeming contradictions in the various accounts, the four accounts of the Gospel writers. And many people in reading that have concluded that the accounts of Jesus' resurrections cannot possibly be harmonized. That there's problems putting these pieces together. And they conclude that the Gospels, therefore, are lacking in historical reliability. But let's rethink this thing just for a second. The fact that the accounts of Jesus' resurrection are not exactly the same actually lends support to the view that they are reliable and they are accurate. You say, wait a minute, how's that again? You say? If the gospel writers, imagine now, you've got four of them, they come together and they say, listen, we're going to make up a story about this resurrection of Jesus. We want to make it sound rather credible. So we're going to get together and we're going to make up this account of his resurrection and we're going to eliminate any quote-unquote apparent discrepancies. And if they did that and wrote in collusion, what would you get? You would have four identical accounts of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, wouldn't you? But the fact that we find specific and unique details in each of the accounts, the gospel accounts, lends credence actually to the assumption that the gospels are accurate, that they are eyewitness accounts and therefore that they are true. And if you have any doubts about that, and there's lots of people that seem to have great doubts about how reliable are these accounts. I mean, let's be honest. There's all these quote-unquote scholars who seem to have such problems. Well, look at Luke. Read the first three to five verses in the Gospel of Luke, and he talks about he interviewed eyewitnesses, and he went to the effort to make sure that he carefully investigated everything before he started writing a logical and a consecutive account in order of what happened in Jesus' life. Now, more importantly, consider just the evidence itself of the empty tomb. You have a massive stone door that's been moved. You come upon the grave and you've got these undisturbed grave clothes lying there where a body would have been lying. And you've got the absence of a body. All of these point to what? A literal bodily resurrection. Doesn't make sense to assume that the Roman authorities, doesn't make sense to assume that the Jewish authorities would have somehow come in and taken Jesus' dead body and moved it somewhere else. That does not make sense. Why? Well, when the early believers proclaimed and start making known the message about Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, no doubt they would have done what? They would have produced that dead body, and they would have quashed that particular message of early Christianity. And anyone seriously considering whether or not the gospel accounts are true, I think you need to ask yourself and find some answers to these kinds of questions. Consider these questions. Why leave grave clothes lying in a tomb which would only lend credence to the fact that there is a resurrection has taken place rather than a stolen body. Who's going to take the time to unravel a dead body and make it look as if somehow it's just been raised from the dead as opposed to stolen? Nobody's going to take the time to do that. And then another thing. If you ask people eyewitness accounts of what's happened, if you've seen Jesus Christ, 
Suppose you get one person shows up. Yep, I saw him. Now, there's some credence to that, obviously, an eyewitness testimony of someone. But suppose you had 40. Suppose you had 50. Suppose you had 250. Suppose you had 500 witnesses, eyewitnesses, that over a period of 40 days saw Jesus Christ in his resurrection body. My friend, that is some compelling, convincing testimony. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then the accounts themselves, just in reading them, take the time to read them yourself and you say to yourself, you know, you read these things, they don't really sound like fables. They don't have that sense of being a legend where you have these kinds of descriptions that seem otherworldly perhaps at times. So if you look at the resurrection accounts of Jesus Christ in Luke 24, for example, and that was read earlier, I thought, so helpfully today in the early service uh, at, at 7.30. Interesting how Jesus assures those people around him, as he now has raised from the dead, he says, listen, I don't come to you as a ghost. I'm not standing before you as a, some sort of spirit, disembodied, strange creation. He says, I have what? He says, I have flesh and bones, which you could see and you could touch. Even more amazing, I find, is the account there in Luke 24 of all the details to include about Jesus is the fact that he sat down and had some food with them. Now, you could have made up all kinds of things about the kind of food he had. You could have said, well, he, we had some figs and we had some you know, matzah, some bread. We had you know, whatever was available. But no, Luke records this fascinating statement. Jesus ate broiled fish. Does that sound like a legend to you? Does that sound like a made-up fable? No, that sounds like that's, that's what they eat, right? Broiled fish. didn't say Arthur Treacher's fried fish, you know, or, uh, you know, all, all those kind of things. No, he's talking about broiled fish. Why include that extraneous detail if it's really a legend? It has a sense of true historical eyewitness account. There's no other explanation for Jesus' resurrection that makes sense of the evidence. And over the years, there have been so many skeptics. Oh, man, the, skept the list of skeptics is such a long list, and we understand that. But the list of skeptics, some of the names that were on that list have moved from the skeptical side to the believing side. And it's not just people that turn their brains off. It's not just people that say, oh, take a blind leap. No, no, they have embraced the evidence, they have examined the evidence, and they have taken their very um, intelligent, analytical minds, and they have looked at it carefully, and they have been convinced themselves of the weight of the historical eyewitness accounts. And I've given you in your bulletin uh, one example. These are many I could have listed there, but the guy named Sir Edward Clark. He's a British lawyer. And notice his statement as recorded. He says, as a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is what? Conclusive. And over and over again, in the high court in, in England there, he says, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling as the evidence recorded there in the gospel accounts. He says, as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of men to facts that they were able to substantiate. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hear me out. 
is not fake news. It's not fake news. There's a lot of that, apparently, today going on, obviously. But this is not fake news. There's no reason to think it is. It's real, historical, factual news. And if that's true, and it is, may I suggest to you there is no reason why you should be ashamed to embrace it and to proclaim it. It's true. There's no reason to be afraid to point people to the gospel accounts and said, have you ever read that and considered the account of this amazing event? There's no reason to be ashamed of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no reason to be embarrassed to share it with other people and say, I wonder if you've ever read that. I'd love to discuss that with you sometime after you've read it. Resurrection of Jesus Christ, the greatest news you'll ever hear. Why? Because it's historically true. Secondly, because the news about the resurrection of Jesus Christ followed what seemed to have been a major setback. So that you understand the context now, you have these distraught disciples. They are not filled with all sorts of hopefulness and, and anticipation, excitement now after Jesus died. They know that when that body was put down, taken off the cross and wrapped with spices, which means what? That they are not expecting this body to somehow be spared the logical and natural process of decay. That body was placed there in a tomb with aromatic, aromatic spices and all of the promises that Jesus made, all of the predictions, they have now become meaningless as long as he's in that grave. And in John chapter 20, the disciples obviously are not going over to that tomb where Jesus was buried on Saturday or Sunday or any time after he was buried there. They're not expecting to see him alive. Those who went there, went there expecting to see a dead body. The women were the first ones there, bringing again aromatic spices, preparing the body. And then those who were told that Jesus, once those women learned that he was no longer there, they were told the message goes out. He's no longer here. He's risen. The initial recipients of that news, the disciples themselves, were what? Skeptical. What? What? Are you sure? I don't believe it. I'm going to go see myself. There's skepticism. They were slow to believe. And the gloom was transformed into gladness when they came into grip with the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, when they finally saw the evidence themselves. James Montgomery Boyce tells the amazing account, a true account of communicating news and the challenges of it that took place in 1815, before the days of telegrams, before the days of telephones, of smartphones, my phone, I can't even turn off, it gives me news, I don't want the news on my phone, it just keeps popping up on my phone, I'm like, I'm thankful it goes away, because I don't really want to read all these little headlines all day long. We get more news than we want, but anyway, in the day before they could get news to travel that effortlessly and that quickly, it was a cumbersome process to get the news out. The true story, the British were engaged in the Battle of Waterloo, 1815. You know what happened also the same year in 1815, right? New Village Church, the first congregational church in New Village was established. 
So here they are, August 1815. The, the citizens of Britain are naturally wondering, how is this battle going between the British and the French? General Wellington on the British side against Napoleon. And a signal man had been assigned to the lookout post in the highest viewing place in town there in London at Winchester Cathedral. And he was instructed to keep his eyes looked out toward the sea. He's looking for the message to come from those involved in the battle. He takes the message and he's going to turn and he's going to focus his little lantern with the lens on it and the candlelight and he's going to send the, the message further on up the hill and away the news will go to different signalmen all over. And through the misty fog, British Channel, the first signal man heard and understood the first message. First word was Wellington. Next word he received and understood was defeated. The fog at that moment seemed to blow in even thicker than it was before. Couldn't see any more signals for some time. And here they have this discouraging, heartbreaking, troubling message. Wellington, their general, defeated. Time went by. The message went out from town to town. They were all forlorn and discouraged. That was not good news. But then two or three hours later, the fog lifted. And so they could now get the signals going again. And so the signal came back, and the message was understood from the signal man. Wellington defeated the enemy that was the full message they went from being discouraged and distraught to being filled with joy over victory there's no question that the news of jesus's resurrection brought great relief brought great joy after a time of grief and discouragement for the followers of jesus and those who look and who know and have come to face to face with Jesus Christ as presented in the scriptures and have understood who he is and what actually transpired in his resurrection, their lives have been changed dramatically because of the hope that Christ gives. True story again of another person who has seen this transformation is Lee Strobel, the guy that we talked about earlier in this book, the author of The Case for Easter, The Case for Christ. He was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune and he was a very capable journalist and he uh, got tired of listening to his wife talk about Jesus so much when she was very much interested in Christianity and so he said I'm going to invest all of my journalistic skills and investigative abilities and I'm going to look into all this interviewing experts and I'm going to find out and prove that this account particularly the account of the resurrection of Christ is nothing but a fraud it's false and so there was one problem, though. The more he investigated, the more he was convinced by the weight of the evidence. It's amazing how one person after another is changed by that. And the clincher for Strobel was the response and actions of Jesus' disciples. That was key. Initially, the disciples were what? Distraught. And they were downtrodden and dispersed. They just took off and said, it's over, man. It's over. Jesus Christ is dead. It's over. But after a short time, they did what? Not too much time took place, and they 
left their occupations. They left their normal pursuits that they had gone back to. They committed themselves to proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, who truly was the Messiah, that he was dead, he died on the cross, that he was returned to life, and they had seen him alive. And so much so were they enamored with that message and committed to it that they themselves put themselves in the midst of hardship. They made themselves uh, exposed to imprisonment and even death as martyrs because they were convinced that Jesus is alive. They saw him, they touched him, they ate with him. And this is one of Strobel's quotes. Listen to this. He says, Nobody willingly dies for something they know is false. The disciples proclaim the resurrection to their deaths for one reason alone. Strobel writes, they knew it was true. They knew it was true. And my friends, the news of Jesus' resurrection is indeed the greatest news because why? Because it reverses all of the hopelessness and despair that we face in this world. Because if you just think through life lived apart from Jesus, with no thought of resurrection from the dead, then what is the point of life? We all die and that's it. Life is meaningless. It is purposeless apart from Jesus Christ. And indeed, for those of us I wonder if you're here this morning and you feel as though because of all of the widespread evil around us and crime and the suffering, the injustice, the brokenness that we experience of life in this world, that does that leave you cynical? Does that leave you despairing? Does that leave you hopeless? Does that leave you with nowhere to turn and a sense of what's the use? My friend, Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is the source of true joy, of true love, of true hope, of true peace. It comes, His transforming power is indeed what brings life and hope into any heart who surrenders to Him and trusts Him fully. Do you know that hope? I'm telling you, those disciples knew that hope, and they were willing to die for it. Third point, very quickly. Why is this the greatest news you'll ever hear? Is because it proves the basic tenets of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The news of Jesus' resurrection provides proof of Jesus' deity. You know, if you think of all the different founders of the world religions, there's Muhammad, there's Confucius, there's Buddha, there are many others. But if you take them all and you line them up and you say, okay, how many of these founders of world religions has an empty grave? The answer, only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ accurately predicted His resurrection. Only Jesus Christ raised dead people to life. He merely spoke and said, come forth to Lazarus. And they had to get Lazarus out of that grave and take all of the wrappings off of his living body. Only Jesus Christ has power over death and sin and hell. And that's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 when he says that the resurrection, 
Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God. How do you know that? Through the resurrection from the dead. So first of all, the nature and the identity of Jesus Christ, but secondly, the news of the resurrection also proves that those who are in Christ, who are joined to Christ by faith, we are therefore declared right with God. We have gained God's approval. Not because of us becoming better people, but because of Christ, what He accomplished on our behalf. And if Jesus, who died as a sin substitute to satisfy the demands of God, had not risen from the dead, what I've just said would not be true. There would be no forgiveness of sins. Jesus would have never been a righteous Savior. We would never be able to gain by faith a righteousness given to us as a gift, and we would remain under the curse of sin along with Jesus. Hopeless and despairing, cut off from God. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, God demonstrated that Jesus completed His atoning work. Romans 4.25, if you don't have that verse underlined in your Bible, I would strongly urge you to do so. It's one of the memory verses that we've been listening for this month. Jesus was delivered up, that means He was crucified, because of our transgressions. Notice He didn't die because of His own transgressions, He died as a substitute for ours. And Jesus was raised up because of our justification to declare us right with God. I'm convinced there are many Christians, unfortunately, who go through a lot of soul agony wondering whether their sins truly are forgiven. And Maybe there are people also who are here today who say, well, I'm not a Christian yet. But I'll tell you right now, I know what it is to have a heavy conscience with the weight of my sin. There are those who doubt whether they are on good terms with God. And let me tell you something, folks. God has made it very clear, as clear as He possibly could, that you can know that there are sins forgiven through Jesus Christ by just saying, look into that tomb. It's empty. Therefore, He finished what He set to do, Therefore, his death is plenty enough. And guess what? You don't have to be your own savior. He did it all for you. And he succeeded at it. Some of us keep thinking that we are people who still have to somehow do something to make up for all that we've done wrong before God. Jesus did it all. And God said, I am approving of everything he's done when he raised him from the dead. So trust Jesus Christ, the raised one, the one who died for you, the one who now lives for you. Listen to this very good quote from John Blanchard. He says this, Jesus paid in full the penalty that other people had incurred, removing the barrier that separated them from God, so enabling God to forgive them, to welcome them into His family forever. I think some of us have the experience of the misery of having like a ball and chain that we drag around with us. All of our past sins that haunt us. Sometimes it's evil thoughts. Sometimes it's actions of things that we know for sure they were truly horribly wrong. Things that we've said we can't take back. 
and we become ashamed. The more we think about it, the more we drag them around, the more we feel condemned, the more we feel that we can never come to God. My friend, Jesus Christ is alive and the tomb is empty. He paid it all. Trust in Him. Be confident in Him. Be freed from your sin and shame. One final thought I want to make here about the nature of Christianity and the resurrection of Christ. Another reason we have to think of this as the greatest news, the most wonderful news, is that the resurrection of Christ provides us with a solid, indestructible foundation for assurance moving forward. Because Jesus is alive, all of His promises are true. They are not half-hearted with lots of small print about the warranty. Well, this is only good if you do this, 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 this. No, Jesus' promises stand on His word as truth. And we know that Paul sort of makes the argument, if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then we have no reason to be confident that we have anything good about Jesus and what He said about the future. We would have no hope. But since Jesus is raised from the dead, He is the firstfruits of those who have died in Him. What's He saying? He's saying that we too, if we are trusting in Christ, we've surrendered to Him, if we receive Him as our own personal Savior and Lord, then we too can know that we will be raised someday. This is not a world in which we end up our despairing days with the thought that our existence is only for this world alone. Listen to this promise, Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Have you surrendered your life to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords? If not, why not? He is raised from the dead. He is the victor. Have you, has your life direction and your heart's affections been changed by Jesus Christ? Do you love Him? Do you revere Him? Do you find Him to be amazing and thrilling to your soul? And the one who gives you hope, the one whose love satisfies your heart. I wonder how many of us find that in looking over the news that we've talked about this morning, you can say with sincerity, there is no greater news that you'll ever hear than Jesus Christ died for my sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised again, according to the Scriptures. And therefore, we have hope in the greatest news you'll ever hear. Thank you for those firecrackers to end my final point. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we sit here this day, we realize that there is tremendous celebration going on in heaven, and that what we're celebrating here today and commemorating is being celebrated all around the world on this, the first day of the week. Instead of the seventh day, this is the first day of the week, recognizing that Jesus' resurrection was the most crucial event in all of world history. 
Lord, I pray that you would take the things that we've said this morning and I pray that you would work in the hearts of those who here today perhaps are skeptical. They have some doubts in their minds leading into this service. But I pray that today, Lord, you will open their hearts and minds to fully embrace the truth of your word that Jesus truly is alive. There's no, wrong, no longer any need to, to doubt it. It is now incumbent upon them to believe it, surrender to it, and to embrace it fully by faith. And Father, I pray for those who today feel the weight of their sin, who feel a great sense of gloom, and there are some of those, obviously, Lord, among us who are grieving, who are sad, who have suffered loss. Lord, may this wonderful news that Jesus Christ is alive, may they know true hope. May they know true peace. May they know that you are alive. You are with them now. You are with all of us in whatever we're facing in life. You are the true and living Christ. You are walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death or through whatever problems or difficulties or trials or heartaches that we face. But that the world that we're in is not going to remain the same. We thank you that you, the victor, the king of kings, you will bring a new heaven and a new earth. Fill us with hope today, we pray. And Father, I pray for those who this day still feel the weight of their sin. They know that they have offended you as a holy God. And pray that you might set them free from that ball of sin and shame by knowing Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior. Even this day, may they come to Christ. Lord, may we know greater boldness, greater freedom, greater joy. Through Jesus Christ, may He change and transform every heart and every life. We pray in His name. Amen.